0: Please open your Bibles to the book of Philemon, or as our American brethren say, Philemon. Philemon is one of the shortest books in the New Testament, like 25 verses. And I was checking a few nights ago to see what the church fathers, quote-unquote, thought about this book. Some of the church fathers from the 1st, 2nd and 3rd century were very critical when it came to which books were canonical. Some would question Revelation, can you believe Some would question Second Peter, can you believe? Some would question Hebrews, can you believe? But when it comes to Philemon or Philemon, I can't find any church leader, I mean those that are well known, that would question this tiny epistle. If you've ever read Philemon or Philemon, it probably doesn't really register with you. And yet, over the last two weeks, as I've been preparing for this morning's recording... A lot of good stuff in here, a lot of interesting stuff, a lot of material which I think gets overlooked by certain Christians. Philemon, Philemon, look at verse 1 if you will. Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy our brother, unto Philemon our dearly beloved, and fellow labourer, and to our beloved Apia, and Archippus our fellow soldier, and to the church in thy house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, if you meet people on the streets, one of the first things they will ask you, if they are religious, is, what church do you go to? And if you say, well, you're standing in our church, or if you say we have a house church, nine times out of ten, such people will look down their noses at you. The thoughts of a house church, the thought of a handful of people meeting like we are doing this morning, to read the scripture, to break bread, doesn't really sit well with them. Many people have been conditioned to be a member of a church, like Four Walls. I remember speaking to a pastor friend some years ago, and he said this, he said that he knew of a particular lady at his church, who we sort of knew of, we spoke to her a few times ourselves, and he said this, he said, what really annoys me is such and such is a church hopper. And I said to him, what do you mean by that? He said, well, she comes to our church uh, one Sunday, one Sunday morning, And then the following Sunday, she goes to another church. Sometimes she will attend our evening service and skip the morning. And he was very critical of such a person, church hopping. Now, I kind of understand where he was coming from. And yet at the same time, I was able to relate to where she was coming from. She probably felt the church that she was attending, run by our pastor friend, wasn't sufficient enough for her. She felt she needed more. And therefore, she would go to more than one church. But like I say, if you speak to people on the streets, if they are religious, they want to know, first of all, what church you go to. Because once they know what church you go to, they can bracket you, which is understandable. Every so often, if I meet somebody in the street who is religious, I want to know who they are and where they are coming from. Not so much now, but when I first started doing street work. So when we read about a church meeting, uh, verse 2, concerning Philemon, or Philemon, verse 1, We know straight away that we are dealing with a Gentile church. As I've said over the last few weeks, especially as we concluded uh, 2 Corinthians, that the Jews, those that got saved, those that believed in Jesus, uh, would transform their synagogues into churches. Whereas the Gentiles that got saved by believing on Jesus were somewhat at a a disadvantage. So what they would do is meet in people's homes. Look at verse 1. Paul, obviously it's Paul. Nobody questions Paul. Paul as the author of this epistle. A prisoner of Jesus Christ. Two things to say to that. Number one, Paul was a political prisoner, but he's also a spiritual prisoner. He was a servant of the Lord. And if you have a modern Bible, or any Bible, excluding the King James Bible, the term that appears many times is slave. But in the King James, the word servant. Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Physically and spiritually, around this time, he was... Detained in Rome under house arrest. And Timothy, our brother. I like that. I like Paul. He always likes to include someone else in his opening epistle. You can tell an awful lot about a person who gives other people credit. And if you watch particular preachers or if you read particular books or if you watch particular documentaries, if such people don't credit others that have worked alongside them then they are pretty much selfish people they're taking the glory all for themselves timothy our brother brother in christ unto philemon philemon our dearly beloved our dearly beloved and fellow laborer you're gonna have four key words that will appear in this tiny epistle of 25 verses prisoner fellow laborer fellow soldier partner Now, the analogy has been used many times over the years by Bible teachers that Christians are in the army of the Lord. And if Jesus Christ is our general, then we are his lieutenants, if you will. We are his corporals. We are his sergeants. We are his soldiers. So the terminology would be very common. Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother, unto Philemon, Philemon, our dearly beloved, and fellow laborer. Apart from 1st and 2nd Timothy, apart from Titus, this is the only New Testament book written by an apostle to a particular person, which is quite remarkable. This guy, Philemon Philemon, was a leader in Colossae, modern day Greece. Some have suggested he may have been a bishop. He's a big cheese. He's a big noise. He's a powerful Gentile. He got saved. And here Paul is addressing this tiny epistle to Philemon, verse 1 and verse 2, and to our beloved Apia or Apia and Archippus, our fellow soldier. Now, these people found in verse 2, Apia or Apia and Archippus could be Philemon's, Philemon's wife and son. Some people have suggested that, and the term pops up, fellow soldier, no doubt concerning the son of Philemon or Philemon, and to the church in thy house. So, so far, we are on good ground. We are reading about a typical church in the first century, meeting in somebody's home. Now, I've said this over the years, and I'll say it again very quickly, that as far as I am concerned, the church system, like four walls, led by a pastor, is pretty much on the way out. Not far from where I live, there's a Catholic church. It's been standing for probably 100 years. And Patrick was telling me a while ago that the Catholic bishop for our area has been given the task of trying to save money because these churches are struggling to make ends meet. Church attendance, I'm happy to report, is dropping. But here's the problem. Yes, that's good news because these are false churches and yet the reality is that once these churches close, the Muslims will buy such places and turn them into mosques. During our time in Golders Green... Last month, we came across the Hippodrome, where we believe Harry Houdini once performed, and we got some photographs of that, which appeared in last month's newsletter. And that place went from being an auditorium to a church to a soon-to-be mosque. You've got two extremes. But like I say, this church near where I live, a Catholic church in a pretty decent middle-class area, to my surprise, is closing, because people aren't attending churches. In fact, I think the figure was... Out of 18 churches in the northwest of England, they are going to close six. And it could be, in the coming weeks and months, they will close even more. So if the church system is slowly coming to a close, especially in the UK, because we are coming to the end of the church age, that would suggest that the rapture could be imminent. But between the rapture taking place, what you will see are church buildings closing throwing the towel in, becoming carpet shops, becoming mosques, and those that are saved, those that believe in the King James Bible, those that love the Lord, and those that love the Word of God, will meet in people's homes. It's a throwback to the first century. And yet, like I say, most people, if you tell them you meet in a house church, or if you have a house church, or if you meet with a handful of people like the early church did, they don't like that. They will snub that. They're very critical of that. I'm afraid to say that Christians, some Christians, can be very snobbish. Three, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The term grace appears time after time after time in the New Testament. It appears so many times that it no longer registers with us. But it was once said that grace simply means God's righteousness at Christ's expense. I like that imputation. But the term grace means love. It's like i said over the years that if we got what we deserved as filthy reprobates, filthy sinners before we were saved and even after we are saved, we'd all end up in hell. Somebody said a few nights ago that if we could lose our salvation we certainly would because the devil would knock us all out of the race. And I thought how well put. The devil hates the Lord, the devil hates the church. He had no trouble getting Solomon to marry a thousand women, and I can't find any verse where Solomon ever repented of that. He had no problem getting Abraham to have multiple concubines, young women, and I can't find any verse where Abraham ever repented of that. He had no problem Gideon having multiple women, concubines, and even getting caught up with idolatry. And again, I can't find any verse where Gideon ever repented of that. And those good godly men saved, of course, I mentioned over in uh, Hebrews chapter 11, referred to as a faith chapter. So again, if we could lose it, we certainly would. But it says here, verse 3, grace to you concerning Philemon, verse 1, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When we speak about the Godhead, somebody has to go first. Somebody's name has to appear first. If you think of any movie that you may have watched, over the last little while, when the credits come up on the screen, it will say Starring, and somebody's name would appear first of all. What they used to do back in the 1950s to stop giving certain people star billing would put their names up in alphabetical order. Mm. That dealt with the tricky situation of maybe puffing someone up more than they wanted to do. But when it comes to the name of God or the names of God in Scripture, it would appear that the Godhead Decided to list God the Father first of all. Then it would be God the Son. Then it would be God the Holy Spirit. And I say that because the belief in the Trinity. The belief in the Godhead is being attacked uh, more than you might imagine. A lot of people in pretty conservative circles are questioning the Trinity. And the dangerous uh, doctrine which I've heard over the last few weeks reoccurring, is that God the Father is Jesus Christ, or Jesus Christ is God the Father. The Holy Spirit is Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is the Holy Spirit. That's a heresy. That's what we call oneness, the oneness belief, or modalism, which has also been uh, used to describe such a belief. And I'm observing certain, not just Trinitarians, capitulating to this dangerous doctrine called the oneness position, but I'm also noticing some King James people also making the blunder of teaching that Jesus Christ is a father, or well, the father is Jesus, and the spirit is Jesus, and Jesus is the spirit. And these people will even go as far as to say that Jesus Christ in the Gospels was praying to himself, which is somewhat of a joke. But Philemon 1, 2, 3 starts off all very straightforward, all very simply, or very normally, uh, or very normal for the Apostle Paul. He addresses it to Philemon, a leader in Colossae. He mentions the man's wife and son, verse 2, and also to those that were in his house. So this will be a personal epistle and also a general epistle. Verse 3, one more time, and to move on. Grace to you, Philemon, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. A wonderful opening. Every epistle in the New Testament was always written to the elders, especially uh, Corinthians 1 and 2. That also doesn't get uh, recognized or acknowledged by certain people today. Most people today think that Paul would write an epistle to the pastor or the bishop. And yet, in the New Testament, epistles were always written to the church. And when it says the church, or when that term of the church is used, it means house churches. There would have been dozens all over Greece and other parts of the Roman Empire in the first century. Verse 4, please. I thank my God, make a mention of thee always in my prayers, hearing of thy love and faith, which thou hast toward the Lord Jesus and toward all saints, that the communication of thy faith may become effectual by the acknowledging of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. Catholics have this erroneous and pernicious belief that they're able to pray to someone that has died and they say for example saint christopher please help my mother out or uh, mary queen of heaven please help my father out or this or that person please help my wife or husband out and they use these sort of verses to justify what they are doing this in philemon is what we call interceding now i can pray for you And you can pray for me, and I hope you do pray for me on a daily basis, as I pray for you. What this isn't saying, and what this isn't uh, advocating, is somebody on the earth born again, somebody on the earth which is saved, praying to somebody which has died. You can't find that in the scripture. I thank my God, verse 4, make a mention of the always in my prayers. That term, my God, my gospel. Paul takes ownership of the gospel, of the grace of God. And Paul, time after time, will affirm that he was serving his God, and he referred to as my God, Make a mention of the always in my prayers. So like I say, I would like to think that you pray for me on a daily basis, as I pray for you. If you meet someone who is out and about for the Lord, doing what they can for the Lord, they really need your prayers. They need you to intercede for them, sometimes on an hourly basis, depending on what you are doing. And where you are. Hearing of thy love and faith. Verse 5. Which thou hast toward the Lord Jesus. And toward all saints. person believes on the Lord Jesus Christ. A person receives the Lord's forgiveness of sins. They become a saint. Automatically become a saint. There's no church involvement. You won't find anywhere in New Testament. Where the church. Whether Jerusalem, Colossae or Corinth. Came together. And prayed over someone. To become a saint. That's not how this works. Salvation is supernatural. When you are born again, your name goes into the book of life. You become a citizen of New Jerusalem. That doesn't mean, and here's a quick footnote, that we don't show uh, patriotism or allegiance to our own nations. Of course not. We are told to pray for our leaders. We are told to intercede for our leaders. We are told to live peacefully and soberly. We are told to be pillars in our societies nothing wrong with that of course but our ultimate abode our ultimate place of worship is new jerusalem if we are saved in the church age and if those that are saved pre the church age uh, could be considered to share in the lord's future glory and they certainly will do they get the new earth hearing of thy love and faith which thou hast toward the lord jesus and toward all saints this guy's got a good testimony That the communication, that the fellowship of thy faith may become effectual, beneficial by the acknowledging of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus, verse 6, the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 3. So six verses from an epistle of no more than 25 verses, outlining, detailing Paul's thoughts, Paul's love for Philemon, Philemon. Paul wants to greet this man. This man was a wealthy character, like I say, this man was a powerful character. And this man, because he was wealthy, because he was of a particular standing, was highly thought of in the early church. The problem, of course, is if you have somebody who is well-to-do, if you find somebody who is a professional, churches will fall over themselves to approach such a person. They will say, uh, are you an accountant? Can you do our books? Or they will say, are you a solicitor? Can you help our legal affairs? Or are you a doctor or an architect or an engineer? Would you be one of our deacons? This is what a lot of churches are guilty of. They pick certain men because of their standing in society, because they are wealthy. They are well-connected. And this is what the Freemasons do. The Freemasons are very selective about who they will approach. They won't approach a window cleaner. They won't approach a lollipop man or woman. They won't uh, approach a dinner lady at a typical school. They want middle class people, wealthy people. And that's what the Mormons do. They will pick certain people from well-to-do backgrounds and get them to join their circle, their religious establishment system, because they know that they can tithe and tithe very generously. But in the early church, it wasn't quite like that. The early church was like a family family. If you think of a typical family, you've got mum, dad, two, three children, sometimes four, sometimes five children. But a typical family, mum, dad, three children. And that's what a family unit is today. And that's what it was in the early church. And the text from, uh, I think it's over in Timothy, says that the elders or the elder are worthy of double honour concerning respect. Not concerning a salary per se so six verses so far like i say so far so good nothing substantial nothing that stands out as being abnormal and most people would read this and just glance over it most people wouldn't say philemon or philemon was one of their favorite epistles they'd say there's not much material in such an epistle Well, i beg to differ verse seven for we have great joy and consolation in thy love because the bowels of the saints are refreshed by thee brother Brother, you are a great blessing to us. We think the world of you. What a lovely sentiment. You are remarkable because the bowels of the saints are refreshed by thee. You are in our hearts. Whenever we think of Philemon, we rejoice. Remarkable. And ask yourself this. Could that be said of you? If somebody was to mention your first name, would they link it to verse 7? Would they say, sister such and such... We have great joy for her and consolation in her love. Because the bowels of the saints are freshed by thee, sister. Would they say that? Or how about if you are a brother in the Lord? For we have great joy and consolation concerning this particular brother. Because the bowels, our inner being, our hearts of the saints are refreshed by thee, brother. And yet most people would look at Philemon, Philemon and maybe question his integrity. And they may say this man is very wealthy. What has he given up to follow the Lord? And people say that because they are many times envious of those with money. It goes both ways. If you have nothing, people overlook you. If you have a lot of money, people suck up to you. Going back to how a good number of churches will approach certain men because they are wealthy, well-connected, and they hope that such men will promote their church. But that doesn't seem to be a problem for this man. 8. Wherefore, though I might be much bold in Christ to enjoin thee, that... Which is convenient. Yet for love's sake. I rather beseech thee. Being such. And one as Paul the aged. And now also a prisoner. Of Jesus Christ. Once again. Prisoner. Paul was a very humble man. He's a prisoner. He's a political prisoner. He is detained. Through the sovereignty of the Lord. He was told very clearly. From Acts chapter 9. That he would suffer many things. For the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what would come his way. He's also... A spiritual prisoner. He's a servant of the Lord. And here he calls himself Paul the Aged or Paul the Aged. Never once did he say, Call me your eminence. Never once did he say, Call me Archbishop or call me Monsignor or call me the Nuncio or call me Holy Father. Titles per se, like the ones I've just listed, are never found in Scripture. They came along 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th century. And unfortunately, if you think of those titles today, or if you think of the term bishop today, and yes, the word bishop is a New Testament term found probably four or five times, no more than six in the Pauline Epistles. If you think of the term bishop today, you think of an Anglican bishop or a Catholic bishop. Going back to my earlier comments, how this Catholic bishop in our part of the UK, has been given the task of closing six churches to save money for his church. His church are very wealthy, but his church have spent millions out because of paedophilia, because, uh, because of claims, civil claims, and they've got money tied up in stocks and shares. They've got money tied up in all sorts of things, and yet they are still running at a loss. They won't keep their churches open for just half a dozen people. And they will close their churches. And like I say, the truth is, yes, that's wonderful. And we certainly commend such a thing. If we had our own way, we would say, close them all down. (laughs) They are all apostate churches. And yet the reality is, once these churches shut down, the Muslims appear, step them up, and turn them into mosques. I'm not sure what is worse, a church or a mosque. Of course, I do know. Yet for love's sake, verse 9, I rather beseech thee, being such and one as poor, the Aged, And also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Philemon, my dear brother. Philemon, my fellow soldier. I have a request for you. I want you to do something for me. 10. I beseech thee for my son Onesimus. Whom I begotten in my bonds. Which in time past was to thee unprofitable. But now profitable to thee and to me. Whom I have sent again. Thou therefore receive him, that is, mine own bowels, whom I would have retained with me, that in thy stead he might have ministered unto me in the bonds of the gospel. But without thy mind would I do nothing, that thy benefit should not be, as it were, of necessity, but willingly. Philemon, or today we'd say Phil, I have a request of you, my brother. I know that you are a wealthy man, And I know that you have a slave, and I mean a literal first century slave, that has run away from you, which of course was illegal in Roman times. And I want to beseech you, verse 10, I want to plead with you concerning my son, not literally, uh, spiritually speaking, and again, like I said over the years, Paul was a spiritual father to the Gentiles that got saved. You won't find anywhere... In any New Testament. In any translation. Where Paul is ever called Father Paul. It doesn't happen. It's anti-scriptural. But here. Onesimus. A first century slave. Onesimus. Onisimus. Pronounced slightly different ways. Simply means useful. Onesimus. Meaning useful. A Greek slave. Whom I have begotten. In my bonds. He has become Paul's spiritual son. They are around this time of writing, both detained, both literally chained up, if you will. And here Onesimus has found his way to Paul. He has run away from Philemon, Philemon. He wasn't saved at the time of departing from Philemon's home. And he's found the Apostle Paul, quite likely when Paul was street preaching. Yes, Paul was arrested. Uh, He was detained And I guess it's fair to say that what was quite likely in the first century for people like Paul as a political prisoner was that he was allowed out. And maybe he had to be home by a particular time, like a curfew, perhaps. And therefore, Paul, it says over in Acts 28, was around two years in a particular part of Rome under house arrest. It says that his friends could visit him. And I think it's fair to say that around that time, Paul would go to the market to get his food in, to speak to people, would street preach and had tracts being around in the first century. He would have been giving out tracts. Onesimus or Onisimus has found Paul, has clicked with Paul and Paul has explained the gospel, the grace of God to him. And he likes what he hears and he hears about Jesus Christ, a man who lived a very difficult life. And he says to himself this, well, I can relate to Jesus. It says in the Gospels how he had nowhere to lay his head and Onesimus could relate to that. It says that he was despised an acquaintance of men and Onesimus says, I can relate to that. It says that he was cast out. It says he was shunned. It says that he was despised. It says a lot of things about Jesus Christ which registered with Onesimus. And when Paul is preaching about the man Christ Jesus, it clicks. It is music to the heart of Onesimus, and he gets saved. But now there's a slight problem. This man, Onesimus, is a slave. He's a Gentile slave, and allow me to say this, that during the first century, slaves could be doctors, they could be accountants, they could be lawyers. They were owned, of course, by their owner, but some slaves in the first century were pretty well-to-do. If we speak about slavery today, we think about the apartheid movement in South Africa. Or if we speak about slavery today, we think about the US civil rights movement, 1940s right up until the late 1960s, going into the early 1970s. And that was pretty bad, and I've seen videos produced over the years attacking Israel. And they said that Israel is an apartheid country, which, of course, is completely incorrect, completely bogus. And I've been to Israel and I've seen how things are over there. It's far from being an apartheid setup. A uh, lot of uh, freedom and liberty in Israel. But when we think about slavery, our minds go to the civil rights movement in America. And we think of those pictures in Alabama of black people being hosed down. We think about uh, what took place in Africa with uh, black people being rounded up. But keep, uh, keep this in mind, if you will, two things. Number one, let's not lose sight of Zimbabwe. Let's never lose sight of what Mugabe did. The first thing he did 1980 was punish the whites in the thousands. Nothing was said around the world. And what, two weeks ago, he was finally kicked out after 37 years in power. He's a Catholic by uh, birth. And I watched his press conference, so get back to this in a minute. And there was a Jesuit priest sitting next to Robert Mugabe, this 93-year-old, 94-year-old, Jesuit-trained Marxist. And this Jesuit priest, also from Zimbabwe, was mediating between the army and Mugabe's government. I don't hear much said about that. I don't hear much said against Mugabe's rule and reign, the exclusion of many white people. You think of South Africa... For many years, uh, there's a group in the UK called Amnesty International, a very powerful left-wing secular group. And this well-to-do secular group refused to acknowledge Mandela. And you say, why? He was violent. And what he would do, along with his uh, lieutenants, would not only target those that opposed the ANC, which was a Marxist set-up sponsored by Moscow, but what he would do along with his lieutenants, is get rubber tyres, put rubber tyres over the necks or around the necks of his opposition people and set those tyres on fire. And I'll tell you something which you won't hear much about from the secular press. Thousands of black people were murdered by the ANC. How about that? You've got the ANC, a black nationalist movement, killing non-ANC members. Not all black people were in favour of the ANC. Not all black people were in favour of Mugabe's political party, which escapes me as I stand here this morning. So, let me say a few things and I'll close for this morning. Of course I'm against slavery, of course I'm against keeping people down, but let's be, let's be fair, let's be consistent. Let's condemn all slavery. Let's condemn Middle Eastern slavery. Let's condemn Arab countries in the Middle East that are hiring uh, slaves from Ethiopia or parts of Uganda, or parts of Kenya. Let's call a spade a spade. Let's be consistent. And let's say that all slavery for the day is out. We can do that from a secular standpoint. But here's the problem, and I'll discuss this next Sunday. Slavery, when it comes to the Bible, was never overthrown. It was never cancelled. It was never abolished. Slavery was never condemned in either testament. And at the same time, it was never condoned either. So we will tread very carefully during our next study next week as we continue to read this very tiny epistle because as I as spent the last week reading uh, Philomen and looking at other verses in the New Testament, I see very clearly, very unequivocally and very unequivocal that slavery per se was a big part of the Old Testament. Slavery per se was a big part of the New Testament, but not in the same way that we think we know we think about like South Africa or Zimbabwe or in parts of America. It was a big part of those in the first century, but when I when it comes to those countries I just mentioned, not the same thing. I'll say a couple of things and I'll close. People say this. They say that I am free. I'm a free thinker. I don't do what people tell me to do. Well, you do. Because communism And fascism is modern-day slavery. If you lived in any communist country, or if you live in a communist country today, or if you lived in a fascist uh, country, you were told what to do. You were told what to do. In fact, it was the Stasi, I think, that were very uh, prevalent in Eastern Germany uh, up until 1989. And I remember hearing that the Stasi had 4 million members of their secret police, 4 million. And their responsibility was simply to not only infiltrate families in uh, Eastern Europe, in uh, East Germany, but to monitor those people. And I was told of a story or an account, which was pretty uh, typical, that the Stasi in East Germany had keys to people's homes. Not only would they watch you, not only would they report on what you were doing, but they had a key to your home. And if they wanted to, they would let themselves into your home, come into your home during a typical meal, and sit with you. And you couldn't say a thing against it. So communism and fascism is modern-day slavery. Catholicism is ecclesiastical slavery. If you are a Roman Catholic, and you question what your church believes or teaches, I mean publicly, you will be... Severely chastised. There's no democracy in Catholicism. I've read of many accounts of Jesuit priests, of all people, falling foul of their church. They come out and they criticise the Pope for this or for that. They are slapped down. This past week, the Pope wants to rewrite the Lord's Prayer. So far, I've heard nothing from uh, Catholic priests or members of the Catholic laity. But if they were to come out, if they were to come out publicly... And say perhaps that the Pope has got Alzheimer's or is suffering with some sort of mental disorder or is not competent to continue to rule the church. They'd be silenced. And yet the media in America are still kicking off about Trump's statements concerning Jerusalem. They are saying that he is suffering with dementia. They want him to have a medical next year. And some of those people that are saying that against Trump are Catholics. Interesting, isn't it? They will criticise him as their president, but they won't criticise the Pope as their leader. So I'll say this in close. Either you are a slave to sin, or you are a slave to the Saviour. There's no such thing in either Testament as being a free man, like free from this or free from that. Whether you were saved in the Old Testament or the New Testament, you weren't and you are not a free person. You are owned. By the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we look at Philemon next Sunday. And I will aim to conclude it next Sunday. We will deal with some pretty uncomfortable verses. Dealing with slavery. Dealing with what Almighty God has to say. About such a practice. And before people get somewhat. disgusted about that. Or start to turn their noses up at it. The easiest way to deal with the subject of slavery. Is to look at the Lord Jesus Christ. As our Lord and Saviour. We are owned by him. We Belong to him. He is our Lord, and that word Lord means God and Savior. And no, I'm not advocating Lordship salvation, but I think over the next Sunday or two, and I will aim to do this in two Sundays, you will see the reality of trying to understand what Paul is going to ask philemon to do concerning a literal slave, and I mean a slave, contrast that to what Paul would ask us to do concerning our Savior in a spiritual sense. And I will explain more of that next Sunday. So we are working our way through the book of Philemon. And like I said last Sunday, at first glance, it doesn't really do much for you. And that's the way the scripture is laid out. The Lord wants you to dig deep. And a good number of Christians, I would suggest, have read Philemon over the years and not really done much with it. And one of my goals for next year is to do a detailed study of the New Covenant. A lot of Christians don't know much about the New Covenant. But as of today, we are looking at Philemon, and Lord willing, we will conclude Philemon. Go back to verse 1 again, if you will, please. Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother, unto Philemon, our dearly beloved, and fellow labourer. So straight away, I am struck with the reality that this slave owner was also a soul winner. And to our beloved Appia and Archippus, our fellow soldier, in a spiritual sense, not physical, of course, The Lord would say that his kingdom is not yet of this world. And to the church in thy house, a house church, it would have been a pretty substantial size to accommodate Philemon, his wife, his son, and others as well. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, so far, so good. And uh, like I said last Sunday, the epistle is like all epistles. Paul gives you... uh, His name right at the beginning of this epistle. So you couldn't possibly misunderstand it. You couldn't possibly uh, question who the author was. It's the Apostle Paul. So I sat down last night and I read through this as I'm accustomed to do before recording it. And I thought this, I thought, number one, you've got a well-known slave owner, a well-known chap in Colossae very close to the Apostle Paul, and I'll discuss that in a few moments, who's also a slave owner. And if you do any kind of street work, the chances are that sooner or later people will say to you, what about slavery? Doesn't God condone a slavery? And yet they wouldn't ask that to a Muslim. They wouldn't ask that to other religious people. And yes, slavery is a pretty substantial subject in Scripture. Almighty God doesn't condemn it per se. He doesn't condone it either. He would legislate it. So, Philemon is a soul winner. He's a fellow laborer. And the Lord would say, Pray that the Lord will send more people into his uh, harvest to get folks saved. Just like paraphrase, there's always much work to do and yet too few people doing anything. For I thank my God, make a mention of the always in my prayers, intercession, interceding, of course, hearing of thy love and faith. This guy's got quite a testimony which thou hast toward the Lord Jesus and toward all saints. Anybody who is born again is automatically made a saint through the resurrection, of course, and the new birth. That the communication, that the fellowship of thy faith may become effectual, beneficial, by the acknowledging of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus, you are saved unto good works. Ephesians 2.10. And like I say, one of my goals for next year will be to do a detailed study of the new covenant... So, with all of that said, we finished last week in uh, verse 10, and read it again, and away we will go. I beseech thee for my son, Onesimus, in a spiritual sense, whom I have begotten in my bonds. He's become my spiritual son. He has become my spiritual uh, disciple. We are both detained. We are both, uh, if you will, political prisoners which in time past was to thee unprofitable, hence why he would run away from Philemon, but now profitable to thee and to me, whom I have sent again. Thou therefore receive him, that is, mine own bowels, whom I would have retained with me, that in thy stead he might have ministered unto me in the bonds of the gospel. But without thy mind should I do nothing, that thy benefit should not be, as it were, of necessity but willingly. He wants Philemon to be in agreement with him. Yes, it's fair to say Paul could have ordered, quote unquote, Philemon to take Onesimus back. It's possible that what happened was Philemon got saved and had this slave who was his own property. Maybe he started to witness to Onesimus. Who knows? Maybe Onesimus didn't like what he was hearing. When a person gets saved, a major earthquake takes place in their life. And they start speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ. They start reading the scripture. And if they're really bold, they may go into the streets and preach the gospel. But something has happened between Philemon and Onesimus. And at a particular time in that we're not told about, Onesimus has fled. He has run away from his owner, Philemon, which, like I said last Sunday, was illegal. If you ran away from your owner, there were slave uh, bounty hunters that would be dispatched to find those slaves and take them back to their master's home. And this guy has made it to Rome at the time, the capital of the world. He's come across the Apostle Paul, quite likely doing street work of some kind. He likes what he hears. And these two strike up a relationship, verse 10, verse 11. But now the reality has kicked in. Onesimus is born again. And Paul knows the Old Testament, he knows the New Testament, he knows Roman law, and therefore what he now wants to do is send Onesimus back to his owner. This is where it gets somewhat controversial, because people will say this, well, aren't we all one in Christ? Aren't we all brethren? Aren't we all saved by grace? And of course the answer would be absolutely. And yet, for the first century, it wasn't as simple as that. Feeding into my hope to do something On the new covenant. 11 again. Which in time past was to thee unprofitable. Because he was unsaved. But now profitable to thee and to me. He's now born again Philemon. And he wants to come back. In fact he's going to have to come back. Whether he likes it or not. Whom I have sent again. Thou therefore receive him. That is mine own bowels. He's a part of my heart now Philemon. Like you are a part of my heart whom I would have retained with me. I want him to stay with me, that in thy stead he might have ministered unto me in the bonds of the gospel. He could have helped Paul. He could have been one of Paul's disciples. And yet this man is somebody else's property. But without thy mind would I do nothing. I want you to be in agreement with me on this Philemon, that thy benefit should not be, as it were, of necessity, but willingly. Please work with me, Philemon. Don't cause me difficulty here. I know you are angry that Onesimus has run away. I know he's put you to a lot of hassle. You've had to hire, quite likely, slave hunters to track him down. That's cost you money. That's cost you time. This guy, Philemon, may have had other slaves, and perhaps they were also thinking about running away. So here, Paul wants to gently encourage philemon to take back this renegade slave go to ephesians chapter 6 so the week before last in preparation for recording this message i thought i should look at other parts of the new testament to see what else we can learn about slavery ephesians chapter 6 ephesians chapter 6 look at verse 5 if you will servants be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling, in singleness of your heart, as unto Christ. Not with eye service, as men pleases, but as a servant of Christ. Doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, doing service as to the Lord, and not to men. Knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord. Whether he be bond or free. That's a pretty clear statement given by the Apostle Paul during the church age and you could even suggest it's still relevant today look at nine and ye masters do the same things unto them forbearing threatening knowing that your master also is in heaven neither is there respect or persons with him so you can't get around it slavery is found in the new testament and if you think of revelation chapter six six speaks about those in the tribulation. Which are hiding from the Lord as he gets ready to come back, and it lists a group of people, and one of the groups of people that it lists are bondmen, servants, slaves. Slavery has never really gone away. Go to First uh, Timothy uh, Chapter six. First Timothy Chapter six and look, if you will, at verse uh, one, please. Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honour, that the name of God and His doctrine be not blasphemed. And they that have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather do them service because they are faithful and beloved, partakers of the benefit. These things teach and exhort. You need to number one. If you are a servant in the first century, submit yourself to your master. I know this is controversial. I know people today think they have freedom. And the feminists have been saying for decades that women are now free to do their own thing. And they say this. They say, well, the sisters have been liberated from the kitchen. And the sisters are now in the workplace doing their own thing. But what they don't tell you is that the sisters are now chained to their computer screens. Eight hours a day. Sometimes five, six days a week. Or the sisters are chained to their tills at the local supermarket five, six days a week. There's no such thing as being free. You're either a slave to sin or you are a slave to the saviour. You may have broken free from the house. You may be a working woman. You may be a career woman. And you may say, well, I've now got freedom. I've got liberty. I am the breadwinner. Or I am free to do this and I'm free to do that. But are you really free? Do your children really see you? Do your children even know you? Most women in this country have children, and go straight back to work, and they hire an au pair, or an nanny. I seem to remember, maybe five or six years ago, there was a woman in the French cabinet, and she was one of Sarkozy's senior ministers, and she was in her 40s, and she fell pregnant. And she said to the president of the day, Mr. Sarkozy, just to let you know, Mr. President, I am five months pregnant, six months pregnant, whatever it was, And I'm due to give birth on such and such a date. And he said, congratulations. And he said to her, so you'll be off on maternity leave for 18 months, probably two years. She said, absolutely not. She said, i am back to work within 18 hours. And she went into a hospital. She gave birth. And within 18 hours, not 18 months, not 18 weeks, but within 18 hours, she was back at her desk working 18 hours a day, seven days a week. And you say, what a terrible situation. Yeah, but it's pretty typical. And she's now paying someone else to raise her child. Go to Titus chapter 2. So when people speak about slavery, yes, it's very emotive. It's very controversial. And as far as I'm concerned, I'm not particularly in favor of it. But who cares what I think? Who cares what you think? When the scripture is spoken, you are to remain silent. The Bible says, let God be true. And every man a liar. Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. Look at verse 9 if you will. Exhort servants to be obedient unto their own masters. And to please them well in all things. Not answering again. Not purloining. But showing all good fidelity. That they may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour in all things. Button it. Keep your mouth shut. That's what he's saying in modern English. He's saying you may be one in Christ. You may be born again. You may be a child of the King. And you certainly are. But... For the here and now, you are owned by the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, go to Galatians chapter 3. People say, well, doesn't it say over in Galatians chapter 3 uh, how there's no more male or female? Well, let's read it. Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. Look at verse 28, if you will. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. Concerning your standing in the Lord, of course. I've been saved 15 years. I'm still a man. You may have been saved 25 years. You are still a woman. You may have been saved 10 years. And yet you are still a Jew. Because a Jew is a race. You may be saved 5 years. And still be a Gentile. But from the standpoint of the Saviour. You are one in Christ. So what you can't get from this is this modern transgender movement sort of thing. Like there's no more boys or girls. Or if you think you are a girl when you were born a boy. Or if you think you are a boy when you were born a girl. That's not what this is about. This is about your standing in Christ. Paul says over in 1 Corinthians. Brethren, let every man wherein he is called, therein abide with Christ. So you came to the Lord... As a married woman or a married man, you stay put. If you came to the Lord as a Gentile or a Jew, you're still a Gentile. You're still a Jew. So what you can't get from Galatians 3.28 is this sort of genderless mentality which is destroying very much the Western world. Once you are born again, once you've been put into Jesus Christ, once Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead, John chapter 17, then we are all one in Christ from the standpoints of heaven not from the standpoints of the earth, the here and now. Go back to Philemon. So, the main theme thus far, concerning Philemon, is that he was a well-to-do gentleman. He was a saved man. He was also a wealthy man. A lot of animosity in the first century, a lot of people that got saved, were poor, were peasants, were on Poverty Street, and they would have seen someone like Philemon, this wealthy chap, perhaps a bishop in the early church, owning a slave. And never once does Paul chastise him for that. Never once does Paul say to Philemon, I mean, well, brother Phil, can I suggest this, that you let this man go? Can I suggest that you give him his freedom? Can I suggest that you sell all of your property? Can I, uh, can I suggest you move down to Poverty Street? Can I suggest you do this or that? Never once. And this is the fascinating part of Scripture. The Scripture is like a circle. You spend time reading the Bible, and you say to yourself this, I've got this down. I understand A, B, and C, and then you come across a book like this, knocks it all out. I spent the last two weeks reading the first five books of the Bible, and my goal, probably early January, is to do probably a 10 to 20-week study looking at the Ten Commandments. I find the Ten Commandments fascinating. And the more I read the first five books of the Bible, on the one hand, the more... Uh, blessed i am the more edified i am and yet when i go to the new testament and i try and read back into the old testament talk about confusing talk about being unable to tie certain things down i think if you could get the entire bible down then you would be probably god this book is circular this book goes round and round and round and round and round. you can't really nail it down yes you can get salvation down and other important parts of scripture but when it comes to conduct when it comes to how you are to live After you are saved, Old Covenant, New Covenant, it's a whole different ballgame. And I've said this over the years, and I'll say it very quickly now, that if you were to ask me for my honest opinion as to whether or not a saved person can actually live the Christian life, I would have to say no. If I'm honest with you, I've been saved 15 years, I'm a typical saved man, and if I'm honest with myself and my audience, I would have to say that you can't really live the Christian life. Not really. And yet you are told to persevere on. So the theme is slavery. The the theme is concerning a well-to-do man in the early church who had a slave. Maybe two slaves, maybe three slaves, but he had a slave. He wasn't condemned for owning a slave. This this slave has broken out. This slave has scarpered to Rome, has met the apostle Paul. And Paul has got him saved. Now, Philemon couldn't get him saved. Paul has. Make of that what you will. Look at verse 15 from uh, Philemon if you will for perhaps he therefore departed for a season that thou shouldest receive him forever not now as a servant but above a servant a brother beloved specially to me but how much more unto thee both in the flesh and in the lord philemon do me a favor if you will take him back please receive him as a brother beloved not just a servant although technically he was a servant And yes, you could release a slave in the first century. You could give a slave freedom. That was something which they all wanted. Those that were slaves. But here Paul is dealing with the thorny subject of taking back this renegade slave. And what he does that to treat him with respect. Especially to me. Meaning Paul, of course. But how much more unto thee, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So, Philemon, you've purchased this man. You would have paid a certain amount of money for him. He would have lived in your home with your wife and your son. You would have trained him up to serve you a particular way. He is worth something to you, financially but also spiritually. He now belongs to you in a physical sense and yet you are responsible to him in a spiritual sense. People know you, Philemon. You are a pillar in your society and you are responsible for doing the right thing. And yet never once... Does Paul say to Philemon, release him, brother. Let him go free. He could have said that, but that's not what Paul would say. Because slavery was never condemned in the sense of being outlawed in the scripture. It was legislated. It was never abolished. 17. If thou count me therefore a partner, receive him as myself. There's our word again, partner. You've got four key words. You've got prisoner. You've got fellow labourer. You've got fellow soldier. You've got partner. This guy philemon was a fellow laborer a sole winner he's also a partner with paul this man wasn't just a well-to-do overweight uh, irrelevant bishop like most are today in fact in the uk if you make it uh, to become a bishop in the church of england when you retire you go straight into the house of lords and you get paid i think it's 300 pounds a day to attend the Lords. the lords you sign in and you sign straight out. Not bad money, is it? Mm -hmm. Time is up by five days a week, tax-free. It's a nice perk. But for the first century, a bishop meant a married man with children. A bishop was somebody who was responsible for a local church. Personally, I don't use the term bishop. I don't particularly care for it, because I was raised in a Catholic church, and I met many bishops, and I've seen different bishops over the years living like kings treated like royalty, and I've seen these people having a lot of power. In fact, I was told a story some while ago concerning the power that an archbishop has. And I was told this, that the archbishop, Catholic archbishop, has a lot of power. And what he would do is this. He will phone a particular parish priest, it could be in any part of the UK, and he will say, is that Father such and such? and he will say, yes it is, and he will say, this is Archbishop such and such, and he will say, are you alone? And the priest will say, yes or no, and he will say, "Uh, yes I am alone, Archbishop, and he will say, Father, I want you to vacate the presbytery by 5pm tomorrow, and I want you to go to such and such the following morning. Just like that. No ifs or buts. The priest has no say, he can't question what the bishop has said to him because when he was ordained he took a vow to his bishop and that bishop took a vow to the nuncio which if you don't know is a term for a uh, apostolic delegate it's a technical term it means the Vatican has an ambassador in different parts of the world if you are a nuncio that means you are a Catholic VIP in a Catholic country and if you are called a apostolic delegate that means you are in a Protestant country And therefore, you've got these two things going on. You've got the priest in submission to his bishop who comes under the nuncio, if he's in a Catholic country, or an apostolic delegate, if he's in a non-Catholic country. And that goes right back up to the Vatican. So indirectly, you've got British priests that are in submission to a foreign nation, being the Vatican. And yet the Queen would say, back in the 1980s, that her favourite cardinal was Basil Hume. She said, he's my cardinal. I'm sorry, Your Majesty, but he wasn't your cardinal. His first loyalty isn't to the crown. His first loyalty, and all of the archbishops and cardinals in this country, are to Rome. They don't show any allegiance to the crown, and the same would be true concerning bishops, cardinals, and archbishops in America. They may be very chummy with the American incumbents, and yet their loyalties are not to their own countries. Their loyalties, loyalties are to the Vatican. So I don't care for the term bishop, because today it has a very negative connotation. But here, we are trying to understand this difficult subject through the eyes of the Apostle Paul. I will say this as well, that it might be possible to somehow take some of the sting out of Paul's approach to this, and say this, that Paul isn't commanding Philemon to do A, B, and C. He is encouraging him. In other words, he's offering his own thoughts. He could have said to Philemon, well, the Lord has told me this, and therefore do such and such, but if you look at Ephesians 6, if you look at Titus 2, if you look at First Timothy chapter 6, and if you read Philemon very carefully, and I have done over the last few weeks, I think it's fair to say that Paul is speaking through the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, and he's offering not his own thoughts, but he's offering the thoughts of the Lord. 17. If thou count me therefore a partner, receive him as myself. He's now my spiritual son, and I hope you will think of me as a partner, which of course you would have done. If he hath wronged thee or oweth thee aught, put that on mine account. I Paul, have a written it with mine own hand. I will repay it or I do not say unto thee how thou owest unto me even thine own self, besides I got you saved, Philemon. you belong to me. I got you saved, Philemon. I've got a crown waiting up in heaven because I was a soul winner, and I got you saved. That's quite a statement to make latter part of eighteen. Put that on mine account. That's a picture of imputation. A subject which doesn't really get spoken about. Most Christian leaders don't really deal with imputation. Most Christian people don't know much about justification by faith. Most street preachers are actually teaching a Catholic plan of salvation. Most street preachers think you can lose your salvation. Most street preachers don't really understand what it is to be saved or to be born again. And here Paul wants this to be put on his account, if he hath wronged thee, and of course he would have done by running away from him, the embarrassment and the expense of it all, or oweth thee ought, put that on mine account. In some ways Paul is standing as collateral, perhaps, if you will. He's saying, whatever this man owes, uh, whatever this man owes you, I will underwrite it for you. It's like if you apply for a mortgage, the building society or the bank want to know what collateral, what you can put down. If they're going to lend you, say, a £100,000, they want to know that if you default, that you've got some money somewhere that they can tap into. Otherwise, they're going to be out of pocket, and that's not what they want. They want to get their money back. And here Paul is standing, if you will, in the place or a middleman between Philemon and Onesimus. I have written it with mine own hand... I will repay it. If you think of Galatians chapter 3, it says that Paul was struggling to see. And it says over in Galatians chapter 3 that had the Galatians, oh, the Galatians had been keen to help him out. And he says they would have given him their own eyes for him because he was almost blind. And here Paul has made the effort to write this down with his own hand. It It must have been very difficult for him, it must have been very tedious for him as well. He can hardly read. He can hardly write the lighting in his uh, Roman detention center. His place of house arrest would have been not particularly comfortable, not very nice. It could be late at night. He's got a candle. He's got a pen. And he's writing this letter to his good friend Philemon. And yet he knows this letter has to go back to Philemon 20. Yea, brother, let me have joy of thee in the Lord. Refresh my bowels in the Lord. So he's now called a brother. He's called a fellow labourer. He's called a partner. And yet, I will say this one more time, I think most people that lived in the first century, that got saved in the first century, would have seen this guy, Philemon, living in a nice big house, having a slave or two, and thought nothing of him. And they would have said this, he's not really saved. What's he giving up for the Lord? Look at his lifestyle. Nice swimming pool, jacuzzi. He's got this, he's got that. He's got a slave. He's got a nice pad, as they say. Clearly, he's not saved. And, of course, they would be completely wrong to say that. Just because somebody may be poor doesn't mean that the Lord will take pity on you. Just because somebody is rich doesn't mean the Lord will condemn such a person. Paul could have gone one or two ways with this. He could have taken Philemon to task. He could have stripped Philemon of his standing he could have said, uh, Philemon, you've brought the church into disrepute. You've got a slave. Mistake number one, you're very wealthy. Mistake number two, you're very comfortable. Mistake number three. He doesn't say that. It's not a sin to be wealthy. It's not a sin to have money. The problem is, is when you worship the money. Paul would say over in uh, 1 Timothy that it's the love of the money, which is the root of all evil, not the money itself. Refresh my bowels in the Lord. Verse 20, my inner man. Refresh me. Do something for me, please. 21. Having confidence in thy obedience, I write unto thee, knowing that thou wilt also do more than I say. I like this. Having confidence in thy obedience. He's now saying to Philemon, Submit to me. I am an apostle, and he certainly was. I I have a higher calling uh, than you would do, than anybody today would have. Absolutely so. And here... He's speaking about his obedience. I wrote unto thee, knowing that thou wilt also do more than I say. He knows that Philemon will come through. He knows that Philemon will put this wrong right. He knows that Philemon won't drag his feet, won't drag his heels. He knows that Philemon will take this slave back and things will be better. 22. But withal prepare me also a lodging, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be given unto you. I like that. Through your prayers, through your intercession, through your interceding, I shall be given unto you. It's like a play on words. Onesimus is going to be returned to you. Through your prayers, Philomen. I will be given to you. We are all slaves. We are all servants in the army of the Lord. Our Lord and Saviour is Jesus Christ. We are not bought with a price. We belong to him. And when he saves us, there are rules and regulations. And like I say, if I get time, probably middle part of next year, I want to look at the new covenant in great detail. Please prepare me a lodging, 22. Please prepare me a room in your mansion. For I trust that through your prayers, I shall be given unto you. Please make space for me. Please allow me to come and stay at your home. Never once does he take this man to task. Never once does he call him out. Never once does he say, you need to repent. You're living too comfortably. And this wouldn't have gone down particularly well with the poor aspect of the early church. 23. There salute thee, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus. Marcus, Aristarchus, Demas, Lucas, my fellow labourers. So you've got Marcus, probably Mark, John Mark. You've got Lucas, probably Dr. Luke. You've got Aristarchus. You've got Demas. Now later on, Demas would forsake Paul. But here, Demas is in good standing with the Apostle Paul. In fact, it's interesting because Demas is a type of Onesimus. Onesimus would depart from Philemon, get saved, and go back to Philemon. Whereas Demas would forsake Paul and never return to Paul. It says that he loved this world and has forsaken me. And in the last part of 24, my Fellow laborers. We are all soul winners, he's saying. It's not just me, uh, Philemon. It's not just you, Philemon. It's Paul. It's Philemon. It's Onesimus. It's Archippus. It's Apia. It's Marcus. It's Aristicus. It was, up until this time, Demas. And it was Luke. Lucas being Dr. Luke. My fellow laborers. What a fascinating epistle. Controversial, absolutely. And I said this last Sunday that, if you speak to people about slavery... Their minds go to the civil rights movement in America or the apartheid movement in South Africa or the problems in Zimbabwe and other parts of the world. We have a problem today in the 21st century. There is slavery going on in the Middle East. There are wealthy Islamic countries that have slaves from uh, parts of Africa. And those uh, wealthy Islamic rulers fly around the world in their private Lear jets and you can't touch them. They have diplomatic immunity and they have young boys, young girls and nobody says a thing about such. And yet these people that you meet in the streets and I've met many of them over the years will go straight to the scripture and throw slavery in our faces and expect us to explain slavery, not realizing that they are born in sin. They are a slave to sin. It's only after you are born again are you free from that slavery And yet, once you are born again, you are now a slave or a servant to the Saviour. And that's very controversial as well. And I'm not speaking about Lordship Salvation. Lordship Salvation is a Calvinist doctrine to put the theological thumbscrews on people. To cause people to really struggle and try and make their way through life. And they question their salvation. And they say, well, I'm not really living it, so maybe I've lost it. Or maybe I was never saved to begin with. And these Calvinists that preach Lordship Salvation are nearly always hypocrites themselves. In fact, I showed you from Second Corinthians a few weeks ago that it says that there will be false apostles, preachers of righteousness, not preachers of unrighteousness, but preachers of righteousness. I'm not saying that all preachers that preach righteousness are of the devil, of course not. But looking at the scripture, I'd say a good number. Probably are. 25 on our close. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. That word grace appears multiple times in the word of God. And like I keep on saying, when I look at the word grace, I take from that God's righteousness at Christ's expense. The term used by most people is God's riches at Christ's expense. But I substitute riches for righteousness and I get that meaning or I use that to explain imputation. And the last word, amen, meaning so should it ever be. So 25 verses sees the end of Philemon, and just for the record, this will be my last New Testament book to read and record. Back in 2010, I started with Hebrews, and here I am seven years later, finishing the entire New Testament in the tiny book of Philemon. And it's been a great blessing over the last seven years to work through the New Testament, to read the New Testament, to Understand the New Testament. It's not as easy as you would think. For example, if you sit down to read the scripture in your own time, that's just you, the Lord, and the scripture. But when you stand on your feet and you read and record live, that's not particularly easy. Most of what I have been able to preach and record over the last seven years, I've done without any notes. I've got a few notes scribbled down to the left of my uh, microphone. But 95% of what you've heard over the last seven years has been presented with no notes. So I'm not saying that to brag. I'm just sharing a fact that what you've got is a rapid read from yours truly and a rapid exegesis. My goal has always been to read the scriptures, to honour the Lord. I am a Bible believer. I make no apologies for that. I've used the King James over the last seven years. I believe every word in the King James Bible is flawless, is perfect. I know that a good number of the subjects in Scripture are controversial. Of course they are. The Old Testament slavery was legislated, never once outlawed. And for the New Testament, and I've shown you from four parts of the New Testament, it's still, or it was still relevant. It was never abolished. And the Tribulation... Revelation chapter 6, slavery is still being conducted, it's still a reality, and it hasn't really gone away. Does the Lord condone of it? I would say probably not. Does he condemn it? I would say probably not. The best I could say is that he has legislated for it, and to go beyond that is really uh, pointless. I can't really explain why that would be the case. People might say, well, why didn't he abolish it? Why did he allow it to continue on? Well, if you're saved, you can ask him. At the judgment seat, there's many mysteries in Scripture that we don't really understand. There are many parts of the Old Testament which I'm currently studying and preparing for next year that I don't really understand, and I'll discuss more of that when we get into the Ten Commandments, probably in the new year. So, 25 verses, praise the Lord, and I give the Lord thanks for being so gracious to me over the last seven years to record every book in the New Testament, and I hope and pray He will bless today's uh, presentation and all of the other 26 books of the new testament which i've been able to do over the last seven years and i pray for this in jesus name amen and amen